Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 56 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 56, we are going to talk about the meet that was the Lighthouse Meet, uh, quiz meet number four, just a little bit, uh, district meet number four of the regular season. And we'll go through some of the recap and sort of the results of what was happening there. And then, nerds as we are, we are going to spend the bulk of the episode talking about the marked questions that came out of the meet. So these are questions that quiz masters asked or, or they showed up in a rotation uh, that was on randomly selected by the program and a quiz master said oh gosh uh i think we should consider either editing this question or deleting it or doing something with it so scott and i are going are going to go through these and nerd out on them and talk about what should be done if anything uh for each of these sort of marked questions and then if we have time uh at the end of the of the podcast session there's an interesting thing that took place at the Lighthouse Meet. We sort of ran an experiment. And by we, I mean uh, Jeremy Swingle and I, uh, we sort of ran an experiment around what would happen or what what's going on in terms of how do you cause a quiz meet to run on schedule and how does a quiz meet fall behind schedule? And we found some interesting things uh, based on our experiment that maybe we'll have time to get into. So with that said, let's begin, though, with a really quick material overview. Uh, this is going to be on First Peter chapter 5. Not very long. There's only 14 verses. So, Scott, what are your thoughts? Great. All right. First Peter chapter 5, 14 verses, as you said. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine of them are PNW key verses. So we sound like a broken record, but this might be the best chapter to just memorize everything if you're a key verse specialist. It's very short. There's a lot of chapter reference words, and I think you could have a lot of fun jumping on chapter reference questions as a keyword specialist if you memorized this whole chapter. It is a cool sum-up chapter. In in the epistles, I, I always liked the ending of books because they were different, right? They kind of got out from the flow of the letter and usually had a bunch of proper names and global unique stuff, and it was kind of a change of pace, so... I really like end of books, which this is. Tons and tons of global unique words in this chapter, a lot in verse 2, and I think a lot of those could be the first or second word in interrogative questions, quite a few in verse 5, similar structure there, lots of basis for interrogative questions. Probably not going to be a ton of chapter verse reference questions in this chapter because it is so very unique. Maybe I have what from verse 12 will be a chapter verse reference, but in verse 5, in the same way, what way is a chapter keyword? So that's going to be a chapter reference question. You will what in verse 4 could be a chapter verse reference. God what in 5 could be a multiple answer chapter verse reference. A cool multiple answer in, hmm, oh yeah. I think in verse 13, who's, no, who sends you her greetings is just a single answer, isn't it? Uh, who sends could be a multiple answer, but not the greatest. Yeah, I'm cringing on that one a little bit. Yeah, I wouldn't write that. Yeah. Want to jump in, Griffin? Well, I mean, you said a lot for 14 verses, and I agree with all of it. It's very short. It's a very short chapter, a very great opportunity f to just memorize the entire chapter, honestly. It, it's worth it. It's uh, kind of breaks the flow, like you said, a lot of unique words scattered throughout fairly evenly and consistently. The I mean, that sort of goes to reason, well, I guess not globally unique. I was going to say, you know, it goes to reason because it's a short verse, it would be more unique. But actually, that's not the case with global unique words. It just happens to have a lot of them and they're fairly evenly spread over. So it just makes it sort of easier to mem uh, memorize, I think. And certainly, uh, if you put references to it, a fairly great chapter chapter to uh, kind of dig into in that regard. Um, yeah, I don't see anything here that's particularly tricky or particularly anything that's kind of, oh, watch out for this. You might get confused by it or something. It's really straightforward. I think it, it reads very, very easy. Uh, and so I think, yeah, it's definitely something. And 14 verses, uh, really, that's just 
you know, one sitting, uh, you ought to be able to memorize 14 verses uh, after you get, a, especially this point of the year. Uh, maybe it's harder, you know, in October and maybe November to just sit down and at once and memorize 14 verses. But at this point of the year, I think our, your, your, you know, brains are in sort of engaged in the process. It should be pretty straightforward to just get those 14 squared away. And certainly I want to encourage people beyond just the initial uh, memorization to review uh, toward the last little bits, uh, last few days, last week or two, uh, before a meet kind of shift from your memorization pathway to a review pathway and kind of try to almost in a sense, re-memorize and check your stuff. There was, there were folks at the, the quiz meet who did, uh, pretty well. And I was very encouraged by what they were doing, uh, pretty w well on. And it was really obvious to me. And I think many of the other quiz masters that they had put in the effort to memorize, but I think they hadn't reviewed. So they, they basically understood verses. They could quote the verses mostly right, but they, it was just, it was like, it was just a little bit on the dull side. It was almost like they hadn't reviewed uh, some chapters uh, in, in the first Peter range and maybe the last week before the quiz meet. So give a chance to be able to do that. And there's a lot of different ways you can review, not just uh, going back to the material and almost rememorizing, but even just things like uh, listening to the material on audio uh, as a way to just sort of refresh it in your mind, almost like a passive activity, uh, even on, on the drive to the quiz meet. If you can be listening to the material, it's just another way of sort of enhancing the material that's already uh, in your head. Yeah, I listen to the material all the time because it was kind of a a low barrier of what to do if I just didn't feel like doing a ton else. And I think it definitely helped. Very cool. Well, with that said, let's move on to some Lighthouse recaps. We had a fantastic meet at Lighthouse. Uh, they ha had us in their new facility. Well, well, partially the old facility, but or the, I guess, legacy, current, normal facility. But they had just finished up this year a uh, sort of an annex, a new building. Uh, and it's just gorgeous on the inside, uh, beautifully decorated, uh, very comfortable. A big gym area that was physically separated from where the quiz rooms were. So quizzers could go and play games and be very loud. And there was this beautiful fireplace and, uh, that was in the quiet area that was just outside the, the room. So people could just relax and study and that sort of thing. And the rooms were great. No room was, was squished. Uh, every room had a, a, you know, a huge amount of space, uh, for everybody to be able to, uh, come in and, and feel comfortable in them. And of course, room one was fantastic during the day. Then we, uh, uh during Friday and then Saturday morning. Then during lunch, we, lunch, we moved room one downstairs into the basement of the main building. And that was great to be able to run, uh, quizzing that, uh, in the second half of the day and close up finals there as well. So just a, a fantastic meet. And of course, being that it was the lighthouse meet, they served pizza, um, which was fun and good. Uh, unfortunately I had to lead the leadership meeting during lunch. So, uh, John picked me up a couple of slices and by the time I was able to cram them in my face, they had both gotten really cold. Uh, but that's okay. I like cold pizza and it worked out really well. So, uh, top three teams out coming out of console, the consolation brackets, we had lighthouse two, uh, EBC one and ABC three, and they did a fantastic job there. And then the three teams coming in for finals, uh, first place was ABC one and then second place ABC two and third place, a uh, lighthouse four. And it was a fantastic finals quiz. And then, uh, our meet excellent, uh, meet excellence award went to Morgan Stoll from East Hills Alliance, which was great to see somebody from East Hills, uh, pick it up this time, uh, especially so this is their only their second quiz meet the team has ever gone to. Uh, since they started uh, attending with uh, PNW or reattending with PNW, so it was great to see that happen. Uh, top fifteen individuals were, uh, you know, the sort of the usual suspects of uh, great quizzers in the district. Uh, wanted to do a few shout outs to a few folks. Uh, Aiden Arthur had a great uh, quiz meet. Brooke as well, no surprise there. Emily Barrett again, just dominating the uh, the key verses, doing really well. Michael Borden did a great job. Sam uh, Samuel Doe did a great job, and Ethan Wright tied him uh, for fifth place. Uh, so Ethan kind of given Sam a run for his money. So that was great to see. Should we look at all the marked questions or at least a handful of them? Yeah, let's dig into it. What do you have for me? So this first one has a long comment from you, but typed by John. 
and it was a, a chapter reference according to First Peter chapter two. What friends? Answer being dear friends. And this question has been resolved, but I, the comment begins. Griffin hates this. Deep and abiding anger are his portion for this question, and then it goes on. But I don't know what it, it said anymore. <laughs> but what, what what were your thoughts on this? I distinctly remember this being asked and John marking it. And I remember saying, oh, yes, I hate this, but I honestly can't remember why anymore. Um, I can tell you that it was in the basement room in the main building on Saturday. So it would have been after lunch on Saturday. But beyond that, I can't for the life of me remember why I hated the question. Is there something about this structure where we're using the... Kind of catch all what interrogative word for what is the adjective attached to the noun friends? No, I mean, this what friends, dear friends, what kind of friends? I honestly don't see a problem with this. Why did I hate this? I have no idea why I hate this. I just randomly hate things. I don't know why. And then I have amnesia about them. I'm getting old. Well, usually I can into it why you have such a hatred for it, even if I disagree. But for this one, I couldn't. Yeah. I I genuinely have no clue why I expressed hatred for this question. I mean, I don't really like the what coming before the friends. I mean, I, t- I tend to like I, I, t- I tend to prefer questions where the interrogative is the last word, but I mean, kind only just mildly prefer it that way. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, okay, so it's a chapter reference question. If somebody jumps on what, then they've pre-jumped. You never jump on a W. What friends? What fre... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't... I'm baffled why I hate this. I retract my hatred. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. So from Hebrews 8, 8, I will what? The answer is make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it was a chapter, it's a chapter verse reference question. And it was marked wondering if it should be a multiple answer. It should not. And can you tell us why? Yes, because I will what is, uh, ends with the verb make, right? Um, essentially I will what? I will make something, right? I will make a thing. Uh, I will make a new covenant is the so the verb is make and a new covenant is the subjective noun right like the 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 noun of the subject so i'm going to make a new covenant and then there's two with parts uh so with the people of israel and with the people of judah that's great there's two different peoples and i'm going to make the covenant but the covenant is a single thing and i'm going to be making a new covenant and make is a single thing so i will do one thing which is make a new covenant with the people of one place and a second place. So if you really wanted this to be a multiple answer, it would be, I will make a new covenant with whom? But of course, then it wouldn't be a chapter reference question, or sorry, a chapter verse reference question, or a reference question at all. (laughs) It would just be an interrogative. Absolutely. So just kind of look for what what is it asking for? And here it's it's answered by the verb, and then everything else is just kind of fluff and addition. But if we wanted to say like, I will make a new covenant with, and then asking for the direct object, there happens to be two of those. Um, Or it wouldn't really be a direct object. The direct object is new covenant, but you get the drift. Yeah. All right. Oh, Hebrews 4.2. There's an interrogative, what proclaimed to us? Answer being the good news. And this was marked, I think, just because it felt a little awkward, would be my guess. Um, But I just wonder about... Like, there are lots of verbs in the past tense, like maybe, who spoke to us? Jesus. And it seems very, like, not awkward at all. But this seems a little bit more awkward because it's a what, perhaps? I'm not really sure. I think it's awkward because humans don't talk this way, right? So, ideally, so this is a perfectly valid question. Uh, I kind of wince a little over the phrasing. It's slightly awkward, but in no way should this be confusing to quizzers, right? So it's valid. This is not at all confusing or or indirect or whatever. It's just a little bit awkward sounding because humans don't talk this way. Like like if I if I was going to say, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say breakfast is what, you know, I'm going to say what is for breakfast or something like that. Uh, or I, I, and, and so like questions where you put the interrogative just kind of flows in certain states. That's a bad example because the interrogative began the sentence. But 
in certain cases, like we, we talk in a certain way in English and we wouldn't say what proclaimed to us. We would say what was proclaimed to us. But of course, we don't want to put the what was because was wasn't part of the or was isn't part of the actual original source content. And so we're forced to basically go what proclaimed to us where what is understood to be the one word interrogative that's replaced by the answer. Uh, and it just kind of feels a bit awkward in that regard, but perfectly valid from my perspective. Sure. And I don't think the the comment was just kind of, uh, you know, and it wasn't because they thought that this was definitely invalid or something. It, it probably just felt awkward for the quiz master to read, which I get. All right, moving on. Hebrews 12, 18. I think this is an interesting one, Griffin. Hebrews 12, 18. Interrogative, what can be touched? With the answer being a mountain. And I don't want to say anything else about it. All right. Well, I'm looking it up right now. And of course, I haven't looked at these ahead of time. So I'm just looking this up now. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. What can be touched? Oh, I am not a fan of this question. So, yeah. So there's a couple of things about this that, that I'm not a big fan of. Who marked this? DS? Was uh, David Swindler quiz mastering at all? Yes, he was. Okay, he marked this. So, and he would have been answer judging with, uh, with or John would have been his answer judge. So, um yeah, I'm not a fan of this because, well, okay, so he's right. It misrepresents the verse. So that's, yes, that alone, I think, should be a reasonably valid reason for tossing the question or rewriting the question. I think if that was the only problem, then it would still be a valid question, just maybe not a good question, if that makes any sense. But I actually don't even think it's a valid question in and of itself, because the verse is a mountain that can be touched, right? Um, and I don't like dropping the word that. Like, I, I don't want Bible quizzing to turn into, I mean, this isn't a trivia question, but it starts to border on a trivia question when you don't have something that directly flows, uh, if that makes any sense. Yes, and I, I understand everything that you're saying. I just don't know a really good way to to say it, because... I don't want to be too blindly literal in that quizzing is just this verbatim sport, but it is true that the mountain was not touched in this context, in this verse. It was just kind of a turn of phrase saying the mountain that can be touched, but I don't think it necessarily makes this question invalid. It just makes it not the greatest. Yeah. Well, I think, I think for me, I mean, it makes it even more awkward, right? I think the way to make this, I guess it is valid, but it's really borderline for me because to me, it's like what that can be touched would be a better question because you're not skipping over the word that, right? And so, you know, it's the idea that we go back. I think, I think I've said this before, like ideally what I want is something where you replace the interrogative with the answer and it flows, right? Um, and so in this case, what that can be touched is awkward and it's it's much more awkward than what can be touched but i think it becomes more valid because otherwise you end up with a question of a mountain that and it's just kind of like oh that's really weird and of certain and of course we would never require the word that to be provided as part of the answer sure so i agree that it's a little awkward but there's nothing requiring you to write the word that into the answer no, no, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but again, and this maybe... goes back to the, how far down the road do we go with this? Right. Um, and it's, it's one of those things like, you know, the pulling different parts of a multiple answer that aren't connected, uh, together to then form a question. Uh, I know you and other question writers are, t are totally comfortable with that and maybe even like it. And I always get really uncomfortable with it. Uh, it's just because I think it, it flow state is, the goal is to, you know, get people to recite what they've memorized. Uh, and so I think having that nice flow where the interrogative is just replaced with the answer just is is cleaner that way. Uh, that being said, I mean, yeah, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't get to the border of being invalid. There's certainly nothing in the rulebook that I can point to that says that this is an invalid question. Would you be fine with a mountain that what? Oh, Yeah. A mountain that what, and then the answer can be touched. I'm totally okay with that. And they say that's, I guess that's really sort of the other underlying thing with a lot of these questions is like, 
well, we want to test the knowledge of the material. What is the best question for the material that we're trying to test? And if, if the phrase is a mountain that can be touched, a mountain that can what, or a mountain that what is, is just far better. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There are, there are times when you may write both sides of the question, but here I think it's pretty clear that one side is way better and you can just write one side of it. But how would you articulate, so I completely agree with you, but how would you articulate in a way that can be repeated um, that, that this one way is better than the other way? What makes it better? I don't think I could say something in a generalized context, but what you said before, the word that carries a lot of meaning and writing what can be touched really omits that. So either you kind of want to find a way to capture the meaning that the word that brings with it. Okay, fair enough. So let's compare two different sides of the of of what I would consider to be equally valid um, questions, right? A mountain that what versus what that can be touched. Well, I'd say the second way is way more awkward, right? It's way further away from how we would talk if we're trying to use that as a rough standard if we can. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I think I agree. I actually, I I totally agree. I do think that sometimes people will not like to write questions at all on a phrase like this where the mountain wasn't touched. Um, but I think that is taking it a little bit too far. There are definitely ways to write a question that is intentionally tricky, but uh, I wouldn't avoid this just because we don't know that it didn't happen, or at least it's not saying that it did happen at this point in time, you know? Right, right. All right. First Peter 2.25, returned to whom? The shepherd and overseer of your souls. This was asked as an interrogative, and the question was raised, should it be a multiple answer? Oh, okay. So, no, but I see the point. Um, so here's here's where I come down on these sorts of things. Um, and sort of the Griffin rule of thumb for multiple answers is, can you ask the two parts of the multiple answer in a different order and have it actually make sense, right? Now, you have to sort of suspend logic, um, so he went where he went to a, and then he went to B, right? So the A and has to come before B. Uh, and so if the answer is he went where he went to a and B, uh, a coming first is, is the route that he took. And if he, if you say B and a, well, that's a different route and therefore a different answer and like, okay, yeah, you have to sort of park that those examples off to the side for a moment. But otherwise, in terms of just purely grammatical uh, structure, uh, return to whom the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so it becomes a question of does shepherd is is shepherd independent of of your souls or is it is shepherd and overseer the the multiple answer and of your souls linking both or or uh, uh, me, uh, le leaning to both of them or linking to both of them so in other words uh is it appropriate to say returned to the shepherd of your souls equally as it is to say return to uh, the overseer of your souls. And I think it is. Now, of course, that then requires a bit of interpretation because you could say, well, no, 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 actually it's the overseer of your souls and the shepherd. Uh, and that's valid. Uh, see, now I'm talking myself back into a multiple answer though, because then, I mean, if we don't interpret this, but we purely go off of the grammar, then I suppose you could say, yeah, the shepherd could be separate. Uh, okay. I don't know the right answer. What do you think? I think it's an interrogative because whom is asking for a person. There's only one person here. I don't think whom can be asking for two descriptions of a person. Well, no, you could say, right. Return to Jason and Bob return to whom Jason and Bob. There's two of yep. them, but those are different people. They're not different descriptions of the same person. Well, sure. Sure. But I mean, they share the same well, they don't shame this, share the same hypostasis, but they share the same um, basic essence. They are both human, right? They're two different instantiations of human, right? Um, so then the question then becomes, now I have to interpret the answer to say, are these are, are these unique ob objective instantiations or are they... Um, you know, uh, shared, a uh, shared hypostasis or something like that. Right. And that starts to get really tricky. I would rather avoid that kind of interpretation 
and you know just say like what 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 does the grammar lead me to to say and of course this is yet another example of why you know i think the whole concept of a multiple answer should go away that's interesting i do see how you could replace kind of both both of the answers possible answers and it flows just fine i just always treated who is we know exactly what that interrogative word is asking like we know what when's asking um, how and why are a little bit less clear, and then what is a lot less clear. But I feel like whom's asking for people, right? Sure, but it could be two people, right? But um, this isn't this isn't two people. It, you only know that because you're a smart Christian, right? You only know that the shepherd is not the same. Sorry, you only know that the shepherd is the same person as the overseer of your souls because you're a Christian. If you were a non-Christian and you looked at this, you you might be like, well, maybe those are two different people. But I think that's fine. Like, we know that if the answer is the Lord and Father, or, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're not asking that as a multiple answer. Right. I agree. Um, but this, this, this comes back to, uh, you know, it comes back to we have to include some level of interpretation rather than just grammar. Uh, and that's not the point, right? And of course, then again... We're debating something super nerdy here over a question type that should be burned with fire. So <laughs> it's it's sort of like this weird cir like circles within circles. It's a Jeremy Barami situation. Sure. And we might be able to talk generally about multiple answers because I believe that about 80% of the marked questions from this quiz meet were multiple answer related. Hmm. Do, do, do. We'll skip that one. All right, here's another one that follows a similar construct from earlier, First Peter, 1 Peter 1.11. The time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he what? And the answer is predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And this was asked as a multiple answer um, and was questioned as to whether it should be an interrogative. It should be an interrogative because of one word. If predicted was moved from the answer to the question, then it is a beautiful multiple answer. Uh, the way it stands right now with predicted in the answer, it is a technically an interrogative that really, really wants to be a multiple answer. Absolutely. And this was an interesting decision by the quiz master that I fully support, but is very rare. So this was asked as a multiple answer and as written is actually an interrogative, but the quizzer jumped before they got to the end of the question. So the quiz master could just say, like, well, there's a valid multiple answer to have been written that changes nothing else. Change, it doesn't change the type, doesn't change the total text in the question the answer, nothing changes, and just rolled with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it shows that there's a lot of things that you have to consider as a quiz master if you're going to do that on the fly. Yeah, very much so. But I, th I think that they did a great job. Here's one. I'm interested in your thoughts. First Peter 3.15. It's a multiple answer. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, period. But do this with what? Gentleness and respect. All right. So I'm not sure how to comment on this one other than to say First Peter 3.15 is one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament because I'm a total logical, you know, nerd person. And, uh, you know, I love apologetics and so forth. And this is sort of the, the you know, the, the Christian apologists verse. Uh, but other than that, I mean, yeah, it's a multiple answer. Um, seems fine to me. Do you think the question is a bit too long or kind of weird how it spans a sentence break? It's, it's wordy. I mean, I wouldn't, it seems a bit wordy, but. I mean, it seems totally valid. There's nothing in the rule book, uh, and I don't even think in terms of style, there's nothing that really says you have to have a, a verse be shorter, or sorry, a question be shorter versus longer or not span a, a period or something like that. Uh, I'm, I, I'm completely fine with it. I am too. I believe this is a failing of the rule book because under interrogative questions, I do think it says that it should be not overly long, but I don't think that that is also repeated for multiple answer questions. Well, and then I would say, like, what is ultimately uh, overly long, right? I mean, somebody could look at this and say, well, it's, you know, it's two lines on a screen. I mean, it's really, it's one sentence plus a fragment. Is that too long? Sure, but it, it wouldn't be the basis for calling it invalid. It would just be the basis, like, as question writers, do we think that this meets that, you know, criteria of not being overly long? 
Sure. I tend to look at it from the perspective of saying, what can I, what can I use as a way to test the material and what can I use as a, as a trigger for, you know, memorizers to key from, to know what to quote. Right. And so the, the writer of this question started at the beginning of the verse and it's, I, you know, I don't know if it's a key verse or not, uh, offhand, but they start with always be prepared. And so this idea of like, if I've memorized 315 and I hear always, uh, or always be, then I'm kind of like, okay, I, I'm pretty well solidly understanding what this is. And I can just start quoting and I get to the end and I, and you get a multiple answer out of it. Um, and, and of course, if I'm looking for, you know, I want as an, as the answer, gentleness and respect, because I think really the key part of, there's really sort of two key things I want people to understand from 315 is, you know, be prepared to, to be prepared to reason about your faith, number one, and do so with two things, gentleness and respect. And so the idea of saying gentleness and respect is an answer, I think is a great way to, you know, evoke or, or get a response that, that should be memorized from this particular verse. It's definitely a multiple answer. And then you say, well, how do I write a question that evokes that answer, but do this with what? It's kind of like, well, yeah, that's valid. I mean, it's got a two word key phrase on the third and fourth word uh, with, with uh, this with. It's not super key, but the phrase, but do this with what is certainly reasonable to do that. But is it so horrible to have the preceding verse in there? Um, I don't think so. And I mean, the other thing that's kind of nifty about having the preceding verse in there is if somebody jumps on always be prepared to, they actually have to give me the rest of that uh, sentence before they move on. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I do think in a case like this, you, you can write two multiple answers, you know, one starting it, but do this with what, and then the longer version, two different tests. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Hebrews eleven twelve. what descendants? You probably won't like this because of the order of words, what descendants? The answer is descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And it was asked as a multiple answer chapter reference. Well, okay, and it's marked uh, as contains an error, which is just a sort of the the generic uh, CBQZ marked message, which means it was it was marked for review, but there wasn't any information really provided, um, which is unfortunate because I'd like to understand why they marked it. It seems to me to be valid. I'm not a fan. Scott is right uh, because what descendants. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of like what kind of descendants, but then it's descendants as numerous as um, and as countless as. And so, yeah, it's really descendants what, right? But, I mean, that's awful. <laughs> that I mean, that's very confusing and misleading. So, yeah, uh, I look at this as kind of valid. I don't know. Scott, do you see this as valid? I don't know. Now, I'm trying to be better about not saying, well, I'm pretty sure everyone would – agree that this is a multiple answer, ergo it should be. But there are cases where, let's say the phrase was the old and ancient descendants. I think asking what descendants there is like very widely accepted as this is a multiple answer. You know, it's kind of a, no one talks that way, but in quizzing, we just, this is how we write this multiple answer because we can't add other words. Well, this is different a little bit because it's still two kind of descriptors of the the, the noun, the word that's in the question, descendants. But because they're on the other side and the descendants as, it makes it a little bit less clear in my mind that if I hear what descendants, I would just, as a multiple answer, as a quizzer, am I automatically going to think of this? I don't know. It feels a little less clear and I don't have strong feelings either way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's valid. It's I'm not a big fan of it. And part of it is the descendants in the answer portion of the question here is certainly not necessary. I mean, it's, it's really, it becomes necessary because you're going to get it out of the question. Either I say it as the question when I'm reciting it as a quiz master, or you have to tell me what the word descendants, because it's part of the question that I'm going to ask you if I didn't complete the question myself. So in that regard, I don't mind having the word descendants written in the answer because it just makes a little bit more clear, like, oh yeah, 
the what is actually referring to what comes after descendants in the order of, of text rather than before. But it's not really required as part of the answer. It's required as part of the question. So, yeah, I mean, this goes back to the whole thing of, you know, the the you know, me being a purist wants the what to be after descendants, but it doesn't make, I mean, that would just be awkward, way, way, way more awkward to do it that way. And I think there is a desire to write this as a multiple answer chapter reference, because there are so many, so few opportunities to write a question of that type. But I think you could totally write descendants as what, and that would just be a simple multiple answer, no reference needed. Well, see, descendants as what? Yeah, right. That would just be a standard multiple answer. Which I think is the, say, it's the better question, you know, but then it's not a chapter reference multiple answer. Right. And I mean, that go, kind of goes back to, I think we need to write the best questions for the material. I mean, the material is the, the, the source from which we pull questions. And when we try to shove the material into question types that don't make a lot of sense, we end up with less good questions, I think. I agree. How many more do we got? Oh, all right. First Peter 2, 6. What cornerstone? A chosen and precious cornerstone. So the comment here was not not multiple answer. It's it's clarifying one thing. Mm, okay, so but this goes right back to what you were saying before, right? I mean, isn't this exactly a multiple answer? I think it's exactly a multiple answer. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is one thing, but we're describing the two things about the thing, right? And and because of the limitations of the you know, the interrogative structure that we use, we can't say what kind of cornerstone, right? Or what are the kinds of cornerstone or something or, or list the properties of cornerstone. Uh, we just have, we, we can only say what cornerstone. Uh, but of course, if at that point you're saying, you know, it's a chapter two, verse six, it's a chapter verse reference question, it's a multiple answer. And somebody says a chosen and precious cornerstone. What's your question? I mean, yeah, I think it's it it passes the smell test. You're asking for two properties of cornerstone. Uh, what cornerstone is in the question? It is also included in the answer, but I think that would be a non. It's similar to the previous one. It's not required in the answer. It is required in the question. So yeah, I th I see this one as valid. All right, and one more. First Peter four six. According to what? According to mm -hmm. humans, according to human standards, according to God, and it was marked saying God is not a what. Well, okay, I it, it is not listed here who marked this question, uh, but the I, I have a sneaking suspicion I know who might who might have wanted this uh, marked. So yeah, God is not a what, but God, you know God is a who. However, we use what as the generic. It, it, if you have multiple things, right? So if, if I'm going to say, uh, there is a list of, you know, five things, uh, a keyboard, a stapler, a marker, a whiteboard and Griffin, right? Those are five objects. And we would use the word what to just to, to group all of those five objects, even though one of those objects is a who, because Griffin theoretically is not a robot. Um, at least as far as you all are aware, bwahaha. Therefore, I should be described as a who and and not a what if I'm independent. But if I'm in a list of like, you know, four objects and a griffin, we're not going to say according to who and what, right? We're, and we're going to say according to what and understand that that's the most, shall we say, flexible interrogative that we have. And it's just really, it, I see what as sort of the giant asterisks of quizzing. Uh, you, you, basically replace it with anything huh i never thought of like oh we got a list of seven inanimate objects and a person and we're probably going to use what to refer to the grouping because i certainly don't want to get into the argument that if the answer is just a person and someone gives a what it, um question on a cvr that we're like well it's ambiguous enough. Well, can't you write, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, if it was going to say something like, uh, according to, to what, and the answer was Peter and God, right? Or Moses and God or something like that. They'd be like, no, no, no. Those are not what's. Those are both who's. We can use a who. But if then you say, like, according to some interrogative, a stapler, a keyboard, and God, then it's like, well... Okay, it's a what or which we and and like we 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 don't want to we feel like we don't want to do that because it's God and God is a who and we want to be reverent and fearful of God. So let's take God out of the equation here and say uh it's it's Scott, right? It's a keyboard, a stapler and Scott. 
those are what's when they're together. But then if it's Scott and Griffin, those are those are who's. But as a question writer, would you write this? Yeah, sure. Huh. I would not. Well, let me rephrase. Um <laughs> I would not write this question, but for not the reason that we're talking about. Oh, because it's a split MA. Exactly. It's a split multiple answer, and so I don't like those and therefore I wouldn't write it. But the whole idea of the what not being able to refer to both human standards and God. I mean, we use what in uh, a in normal human English, uh, you know, communicating about a list of things. And if I've got four objects, inanimate objects and Scott, I'm going to use the word what in casual conversation and in, in normal written language and in legal documentation as well. Right. So that doesn't remove the personhood of Scott from the equation. It's just it's a a, a function of English. Interesting. Well, we'd love feedback from any of you who especially disagree with us on any of those thoughts. And yeah, we're always looking for disagreement. Yeah, we are always looking for disagreement. So did I convince you or are you still in disagreement? Oh, I wouldn't write that. And you wouldn't write it. Okay. And, because, because of the of the who versus the what. Yeah. And I I would never put myself in the position as a quiz master of deciding whether the provided question by a quizzer is acceptable or not, because I would just be throwing the question out. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. And here's the thing, like, like in a lot of these things, we need to keep coming back to the notion of, we don't have to write the question. There are so many good, valid, you know, questions that can be written from the material. We don't have to sort of stretch and stretch and stretch to write every question that at least is theoretically plausibly valid. There are so many good and valid questions that we don't need to worry about the not so great, but yet still valid questions. We can just skip them. And so if you're writing questions for your district or your church or something, and you come upon a question where you're like, mm, I don't really like it, go ahead and delete it. There's no reason to try to shove in extra questions. We have so many questions, like in the officials question pool, we've got like what, 5,000 questions or something. We have tons and tons of questions. There's just, there's no reason to kind of slip in things that are, you know, questionable. That is good advice. That is the end of my marked questions. All right. Well, fun times. So let's talk a little bit about uh, quiz meet running on schedule and so forth, since we have a little bit of time. So at the Lighthouse Meet, so actually I should sort of revert a little bit and talk about this year. So this year, all of the quiz meets up to, but not including the Lighthouse Quiz Meet, have been either slightly behind schedule or a lot behind schedule. And what has turned out to be fortunate for us in these cases of everything up and uh, up until but not including Lighthouse has been that because we are a bit smaller of a district this year than in years past, it hasn't been the end of the world to actually go over schedule, right? So we tend to still wrap up around three thirty, four o'clock, and it's really not or on Saturday, and it's really not the end of the world since even though we were maybe scheduled to conclude around two thirty if we're concluding around 3.30 or, you know, um, 3.50 or something, it's really not, you know, you know, rains of brimstone coming down from the skies or something like that. It's just sort of like, wow, that's unfortunate that, you know, we ran over schedule kind of thing. But it's been kind of annoying and kind of weird and kind of this kind of like, why are we consistently running behind schedule? And so what Jeremy and I did since the last meet, we've talked like numerous times, I don't know, like four or five different times and, you know, texting back and forth and emailing and so forth, trying to figure out like, what can we do and what can we do? And what we did at Lighthouse is we did something kind of interesting to kill two birds with one stone. And if you know anything about Jeremy or me, you know that we both love killing birds with stones. And so here's what we did. Next meet, not the lighthouse meet, but the one that's coming up next, which is the the Dallas meet, and it's going to be meet our district meet number five in I don't know four weeks or something. It's in March sometime. Uh, we are going to have several of our routine regular quiz masters not able to attend, and so what we wanted to do was kind of provide a you know a hardcore training session as as part of the lighthouse meet as well as actually having really good quiz masters so we uh i 
if promoted is the right word, we changed the role of of David uh, Swin the Swindler and made him uh, a quiz master in room one for prelims. And we uh, we also had other we had Andrew uh, Borden uh, as a quiz master. And uh, what we did was we had each of these quiz masters tied up with a um, or paired up with an answer judge. And both both the quiz master and answer judge have uh, skills and foo and background and knowledge and are, are very capable both at the quiz mastery and at the answer judge sort of level. But we paired people up like this. And then we added a veteran quiz master in each room as what we would call a quiz master trainer, right? So I was in room one as the quiz master trainer with uh, John, who was the answer judge, and David, who was the quiz master. And then the two of them swapped and then uh, between prelims and brackets. And so then uh, John became the quiz master and David became the answer judge. And then I, I remained the trainer and so forth. And we did that in three of our four rooms. And we did that for basically two reasons. Number one, we wanted to do everything that we could to equip and prepare uh, sort of this new group of quiz masters such that when we go to Dallas, they are... Uh, fully prepared to sort of run their room and, uh, you know, control the room and own the room as, as the, as the sole quiz master authority in that room. And that was sort of like, that was objective number one. But objective number two was while this is happening, because we have an answer judge and a quiz master, the quiz master trainer doesn't actually have to pay that much attention to the actual legality of the verse that's the, or, or the reference or the question or the quizzer or anything like that, because we've got the answer judge and the quiz master who are taking care of that. The quiz master trainer gets to essentially ex exclusively focus on how is the quiz master, you know, how's their pacing? How's their spacing between questions? How are they controlling the room? How is the answer judging uh, going in terms of rulings? Are they looking things up in parallel? Like there's all these sort of things that the, the QMT can actually do that otherwise an answer judge wouldn't really be able to do, you know, in terms of like things like a finish the verse question as a as a as a answer judge and a finish the verse question comes up. I need to really be focused on what is the quiz master or sorry, not the quiz master. What is the quizzer saying? Right. And I have to follow along. And with some quizzers, I have to follow along very, very, very carefully and fast because they recite the verses really, really fast. But as a QMT, I don't have to do that. I can focus exclusively on, on sort of the, the meta of the quiz and sort of the everything else that's going on. And one of the things that the QMTs were focusing on were things like, when does a question start time-wise? When does a quiz start time-wise? When does it end? And how are we doing in terms of our control of time within a particular room? And what ended up happening was kind of interesting. Be we basically went on time. Uh, across all rooms and across the entire meet. And in fact, because of a little weird kind of mix up in terms of who was officiating, uh, in one of the rooms, we actually got behind by about uh, two thirds of a quiz or so, maybe three quarters of a quiz or so on Friday in prelims. And I thought for sure we were going to be one quiz behind by the end of the, the, the evening, the end of Friday. And it turns out two quizzes before the end of prelims on Friday, all rooms were caught up and we ended the, the prelims, uh, all rooms slightly ahead of schedule. Uh, which is just weird because, and I sort of joked with Jeremy about it. I think that evening I, I joked with him that it was, uh, what is it? Schrodinger, not Schrodinger. Um, Heisen, it was the Heisenberg, uh, or quantum quizzing. I guess it's, that's probably better. It's, it was quantum quizzing. The idea that when you observe the quiz time, the quiz time changes, you know, sort of thing. And there may be some truth to that. So it sort of sparked this kind of debate because essentially what we were trying to do with the QMTs in the second order of, of value was to understand what is causing our quiz meets to go long. And of course, because they didn't go long at, or the quiz meet didn't go long at Lighthouse, we didn't have that much to observe. And so we, we had to still continue to speculate. 
So one of the things we were, or several things we we were thought of thinking of like, well, what are things that could have resulted in the Quizmet, Quizmet going long? And one was just um, a combination of like Quizmasters being aware of the time uh, is sort of part of it. A Quizmaster being told like, no, hey, you know, focus on the time. That's that's one of your priorities. Um, causes the Quizmaster to actually care about staying on schedule. So... I don't know. I've been talking a whole lot, but Scott, what are your sort of thoughts around from your experience? And obviously you weren't physically at the lighthouse meet, you were running, you know, statistics from afar, but in your experience of both as a, you know, as a, a, a coach and a, a quizzer and a quiz master, and then a, a meet director and district coordinator, like, what do you think uh, causes a quiz or a meet to run on schedule or fall behind schedule? I think one of the main things is knowing how to schedule everything. I think there were times where as soon as prelims were done, we knew that some there, some time was needed to calculate semifinals and consolation brackets. And previously, I would try to have that be 10 minutes and turn it around as fast as we could. When in reality, if there's something else you can do in a 20-minute time slot to keep everyone on a regular every 20-minute schedule is probably better. And then it it would also make it easier on the statistician. So like knowing, well, trying to crank it out in 10 minutes is probably not a good idea. Um, and what you've done is put the adult quizzing league in that 20-minute time slot. So it might be that there are times where it only takes me five minutes to crank it out, but it's not like the on-timeness of the schedule is beholden to that, right? Right. Um, and then I always tried to pretty much eliminate the big reasons that time that rooms get behind schedule. A massive one was the equipment, right? Acme equipment would fail all the time, either the hardware or the software. And so we just ripped out that dependency, you know, went with quiz time stuff and it's been rock solid as far as I know. And that just having it be all hardware, no software actually reduced a lot of the dependencies. And I think that's a big deal. Because having to slow up for equipment because a light wasn't on or a light's not working or something like that is a massive, massive time suck. Another one is challenges, protests, rebuttals, and all that jazz. So you minimize those in a few ways because we want them. But if you have better quiz masters, then you, all things being equal, you'll have fewer of them, right? But then also, if you train your quiz masters well to be able to handle challenges and rebuttals well, you probably will also minimize the occurrence of protests, right, which can take a lot longer. So that's training up your officials to feel confident to handle all of those situations. And then beyond that, you kind of just get to the more fine-tuning of every quiz. Like, I mean, the quiz master has to know that they are the only ones responsible with moving a room along. If quizzers and coaches were left to themselves, they would have endless stage time and prayer time and talking with themselves time, and we would not start the quiz, right? So the quiz master needs to constantly be saying, hey, it's time to start. We're going to check the light soon. We're going to do this next. We're going to do this next. Three teams, please take the stage. Or a huge one that I would always do is when a quiz was done, I would say, can we have the three winning teams please leave the stage quickly? Because oftentimes they would linger, and they would just kind of gum up the whole area for the next three teams to come up onto the stage and get ready. So just knowing that as the quiz master, you're the only one who's going to keep us on time. No one else is going to do it. And just have that command of the room to keep everything going. And then as a quiz master, it's kind of hard to kind of just have to learn this over time, but just getting better at making rulings and being confident in them, right? And that just comes with time. I mean, when I first started quiz mastering, there were so many rulings that it was in the subjective area and I just didn't know what to rule. So I'd think about it longer and longer and longer. And that rarely helps you get to a conclusion. <laughs> so you just have to rely on better and better mental models and understanding of the rule book to decide like, hey, did they say enough to take them out of context? Did they say enough to get them counted correct? And that kind of thing. And and then there are little little tricks, you know, on a chapter verse reference when I haven't finished the question, I would know like if the quizzer gives me this question, I'm going to count them right. If they give me this question, I'm going to count them wrong. So it's not like, oh, they give me this question on a chapter reference, for example, and I have to look it up to make sure that it is not a chapter verse reference if they said, like, I will be what instead of I will what or something or vice versa. So I would have looked those up while they are answering to know how I'm going to rule. But in the grand scheme of things, that's that's going to save you a minute a meet or something like that. 
Um, so it's really just, I think the equipment was massive. Training up your quiz masters to handle challenges, rebuttals, and protests well will make them go faster on average and reduce the number of them. And then just general experience of officials will have them rule um, confidently, correctly, and consistently more quickly. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Well, and then beyond that, there is sort of the obvious things of when officials show up to a meet, they should show up to a meet early rather than late, and they should go to their room immediately <laughs> instead of, you know, spending half an hour talking with people first. I mean, it's it's a, it's really fun to socialize. I mean, everybody loves to socialize, and we haven't seen each other in like a month plus you know, or whatever it's been since the previous meet. So certainly, and we all love hanging out with each other and geeking out, geeking out and nerding out and so forth. So yeah, we, there's a certain level of desire to fellowship for a bit, but that needs to happen after your room is set up, right? So if you're, if you're a quiz master, go set your room up, make sure you're, you know, if you're using a laptop, which we are in PNW, make sure it's set up, that your internet's connected, that you're, you're logged into CBQZ, that you've got your question distribution set up correctly. Uh, you know, that, that you've maybe plugged in your lights and you're like, yep, there's electricity, everything's set up. The room is happy. Like, uh, if you're a scorekeeper, do I have blank score sheets? Do I have a, a roster? Do I have a schedule? If you're an answer judge, you want to make sure like, do I have electricity if I'm using, you know, a, a computer or something like that? Am I able to reference things very quickly? Is my quiz master, you know, here, you know, if, if you're, if you're an answer judge, in a sense, you can look and say like, well, I'm ready, but my quiz master's not, where's my quiz master and go hunt him or her down and be like, go get ready, you know, kind of stuff. Because it's weird that we, we kind of assume that's simple stuff, but it makes a huge difference when like, if your first quiz is at six forty, and the room isn't set up, it could take, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to get your room set up. You know, if you're a quiz master in terms of plugging in your laptop and turning it on and booting it and going, you know, loading up a, a browser and getting, getting everything ready to go. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to take that long, but it really does. And now you're, you know, three quarters of a quiz behind and then the other three rooms now are waiting on the quizzers from your room, probably. You know, there's probably at least one team that's moving off into some other quiz straight away. And that delays another room by three quarters of a quiz. And then, of course, that just snowballs uh, over time. And it shouldn't, right? It should be one of those things where, like Jeremy was making a great observation, that quizzes ought to be able to be normally completed in about 15 minutes. But if you have a lot of, you know, particular, you know, equipment malfunction, or you have a lot of challenges or something like that, or there's a protest that pops up or something like that, then yeah, you can blow past 20 minutes. But that shouldn't be a problem because normally quizzes are 15 minutes. And so, you know, you've got maybe a couple of minutes transition time, which means, you know, after, you know, three or four quizzes probably have made up, you know, uh, any sort of problems that have happened so long as everyone else is trying to maintain those 15 minute quizzes as well. So it's just kind of, there's some, there's some important, simple things that need to be done that, that keep us on schedule, I think. Yeah. I always viewed being a quiz master as one of the most important roles at a meet because you often don't have a replacement and everything's going to wait on you. And yeah, so I, I always wanted to be prepared and have backup plans in place because I mean, if a single quizzer doesn't show up or if a team doesn't show up, you can often just continue on with the meet or um, even a scorekeeper, you know, you can plug in something else. Um, but you can't really do anything if the quiz master is not there and prepared. Yeah. And when you, when you're dealing with technology as we are, you know, for quiz masters in PNW because of CBQZ, I mean, it's fairly easy to use, but it still requires, you know, a little bit of setup time, you know, a few seconds. It's not a, a huge big deal, but it's not something that you want to do on the fly, right? Because if it works, then it works and everything's great. But if it doesn't work, you, you have to spend a couple of minutes fixing it or, or figuring something out and better to just deal with that when you're not under time pressure, right? Just take care of it ahead of time and it's no big deal. Yeah. I had a, a checklist for every single meet of what to set up and a good chunk of it was the computer, right? So it needs to be on and plugged in. I need to have my mouse ready, um, microphone plugged in if I'm using it. But then as far as documents, I needed CBQZ up. I needed the roster so I could copy and paste into CBQZ up. I needed the rule book up 
I would have the schedule up. Um, when I was district coordinator, I would have um, a chat window up so that other quiz masters and other people could reach me if need be. And I just made sure, like, I'm not going to leave this up to chance. I'm going to list out all the different either programs or windows or settings that I need to have ready to go and make sure that they are ready for each meet. Right, right, indeed. Well, with that said, uh, we, of course, would very much like to hear your thoughts and your, even more so, your disagreements. So if there were any marked questions that you disagreed with, or if you have ideas around what makes quiz meets run on schedule or what causes them to fall behind or different uh, uh, points of view or different advice that we have talked about, we would very much love to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, we don't do a lot of Twittering with our Inside Quizzing uh, Twitter account, but I guess that's mostly just because people haven't asked us questions on Twitter, but you can absolutely do that. So if you want to have a more public uh, sort of back and forth conversation, uh, very much encourage you to send us a tweet uh, to our account at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will bid you all adieu and say thank you. And thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. 